DDL reads books and difficult legal stuff aloud. No stutzo guests or comedians in this episode. Nearly all our episodes provide a companionable, chatty and entertaining experience. These Judy DL reads stuff aloud episodes are solid legal documents and a serialised novel that I like. Welcome. I'm Judy DL and I'm a radioactive cockroach. I adopted this identity in response to how I felt when I began making formal disclosures of historic sexual assault and engaging with the processes. People couldn't help but recoil from me and I felt like I should just scuttle back under the fridge. It turns out I'm far from alone. If you too have felt a bit cockroachy, you'll also know we are the ultimate survivors. Welcome to Radioactive Cockroach. explicit and triggering details here, but if anything you hear today, or anywhere else for that matter, raises worrying issues for you or for someone you love, we encourage you to call in Australia 1-800-RESPECT. There's more information at the end of the show, on our podcast feed and on our Facebook page. Radioactive Cockroach is recorded with gratitude and respect for elders past, present and emerging on the land of the Jajawara. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. When I was embroiled in legal processes after making formal complaints, it was a great grief to me that the stress of engaging in the processes robbed me of the joy of reading. I could no longer fall easily asleep with a book in my hand or engage with a difficult text. But I discovered I could listen and walk or cook or chop wood. I could remain agitated and still access stories and information. So... Here we go. And today's order of proceedings is... Firstly, Dorothy L. Sayers, Strong Poison. We're galloping through chapters 4, 5, 6 and 7 and the first bit of chapter 8 in summary and then we're reading the full glory of chapter 8. To catch up, go to... Series 2, Episode 3. Secondly, there's a reading taken from the Sentencing Council of Victoria's website about sentencing. Thirdly, sentencing remarks delivered by Judge Merrill Sexton. And fourthly, a brief selection from an ABC article published online and well worth reading. It's called In the Witness Box. It's by Elise Kinsella and was published on the 18th of July this year, 2021. Links to all these articles 
are on the podcast feed and also on our Facebook page. Bessie couldn't help it any more than you could. Or I could. Bessie couldn't help it, though she tried to be good. Oh, oh so good. Oh. She was pretty as the heavens above. Oh, boy, and how she could love. Oh. Bessie had affection that was simply. Oh, but then don't go down in my mind, darling. Bessie couldn't help it any more than you could. Oh. Or I could. Oh. When she smiled. You were bound to fall, that's all. A boy kissed Bessie in the parlor one night. Oh, she will melt a little round of the mind. Bessie couldn't help it any more than you could or I could. Well, cockroaches, we commenced our gallop through Dorothy L. Sayers' Strong Poison in our first episode of Judy D.L. Reads Stuff Aloud, which was Radioactive Cockroach Series 2, Episode 3. And we learned that Harriet Vane was being tried for her life. Just remembering, these were the days of the death penalty, which wasn't abolished until the 1960s. She was accused of poisoning her lover, Philip Boyce. The judge outlines the damning evidence against her, but the jury is hung and a retrial is ordered. Lord Peter Whimsey, an amateur investigator, attends the trial out of interest and is utterly smitten by Harriet Vane, who is a writer of detective fiction. He determines to solve the case in her favour and we attend with him a meeting with her legal team and a visit to Harriet herself in Holloway Jail. We also meet a key personality, Miss Clemson, who was on the jury and hung out for Harriet's acquittal. So, we commence our continuing gallop through Strong Poison with a summary of Chapter 5, commencing with an excerpt that explains all regarding Miss Clemson. Chapter 5 Well now, said Whimsy, why do people kill people? He was sitting in Miss Catherine Clemson's private office. The establishment was ostensibly a typing bureau and indeed there were three efficient female typists who did very excellent work for authors and men of science from time to time. Apparently the business was a large and flourishing one for work frequently had to be refused on the ground that the staff was working at full pressure. But on other floors of the building there were other activities. All the employees were women, mostly elderly, but a few still young and attractive, and if the private register in the steel safe had been consulted, it would have been seen that all these women were of the class unkindly known as superfluous. There were spinsters with small fixed incomes or no income at all, widows without family, Women deserted by peripatetic husbands and living on a restricted alimony who, previous to their engagement by Miss Clemson, had had no resources but bridge and boarding house gossip. There were retired and disappointed school teachers, out of work actresses, courageous people who had failed with hat shops and tea parlours, and even a few bright young things for whom the cocktail party and the nightclub had grown boring. These women seemed to spend most of their time in answering advertisements. 
unmarried gentleman who desired to meet ladies possessed of competences with a view to matrimony, sprightly sexagenarians who wanted housekeepers for remote country districts, ingenious gentlemen with financial schemes on the lookout for capital, literary gentlemen anxious for female collaborators, plausible gentlemen about to engage talent for productions in the provinces, benevolent gentlemen who could tell people how to make money in their spare time. Gentlemen such as these were very liable to receive applications from members of Miss Clemson's staff. It may have been coincidence that these gentlemen so very often had the misfortune to appear shortly afterwards before the magistrate on charges of fraud, blackmail or attempted procuration. But it is a fact that Miss Clemson's office boasted a private telephone line to Scotland Yard and that few of her ladies were quite so unprotected as they appeared. It is also a fact that the money which paid for the rent and upkeep of the premises might, by zealous inquirers, have been traced to Lord Peter Wimsey's banking account. His lordship was somewhat reticent about this venture of his, but occasionally, when closeted with Chief Inspector Parker or other intimate friends, referred to it as my cattery. Miss Clemson poured out a cup of tea before replying. She wore a quantity of little bangles on her spare lace-covered wrists and they chinked aggressively with every move. I really don't know, she said, apparently taking the problem as a psychological one. It is so dangerous as well as so terribly wicked one wonders that anyone has the effrontery to undertake it and very often they gain so little by it. We leave the excerpt there and continue our gallop. She and Lord Peter Wimsey brainstorm possibilities over a cup of tea. One, accounting for missing time in boys last evening, perhaps in a pub. Secondly, Regarding money, was he insured? Thirdly, did he have an inheritance coming? Fourthly, was he being blackmailed? And fifthly, did he commit suicide? Lord Peter departs and goes to see Chief Inspector Parker of Scotland Yard and takes his tips there. They consult and decide that things are not looking strong. Galloping through Chapter 6, we learn Lord Peter's car is called Mrs Myrtle. And as a footnote, this is a character from Charles Dickens' Little Dorrit and was society's best-dressed and most glamorous hostess. He goes to visit the Reverend Arthur Boys, the murdered Philip Boys, father. The clergyman was a tall, faded man, with lines of worry deeply engraved upon his face, and mild blue eyes a little bewildered by the disappointing difficulty of things in general. He's a kind man, estranged from his son. He also doubts the verdict. He had some respect for Harriet Vane, and disapproves of the death penalty. He's very keen to help. He is sure that it was not suicide. He had no money. He was not insured. And there is no money in the family 
except perhaps for his wife's Aunt Cromorna Garden, a notorious actress in the 1860s. Whimsy takes his leave and gives generously to the box labelled Church Expenses. Whimsy then pays a visit to Boyle's publishers, Grimby and Cole. He goes under the pretext of acquiring all Philip Boy's first editions. I'm a collector, don't you know? He puts his name down for a special memorial collected works. He discovers little of any immediate use. He then visits Harriet's agent. Miss Vane's sales are booming. It won't last. It'll fall off when she is released. Harriet was writing a book about arsenic poisoning and Whimsy acquires the proofs. He also gains the knowledge that Harriet's agent does not trust Boyle's publishers, Grimsy and Cole. And continuing our gallop, we now find ourselves in Chapter 7. This is another visit to Harriet Vane, a visit which sets Whimsy's mind very much at rest, that she did not murder him. He exhorts her to keep smiling, because it suits her, apparently, something I myself can't read without going, Ugh. We then turn our attentions to Urquhart, the cousin of Philip Boys, in whose house Boys died. Whimsy chats with the cook at his door. She reveals that Urquhart is away visiting an elderly lady whom he has previously visited. She suggests he approach his office for the address and also reveals how relieved she was that it was clearly established at the trial that the poison did not emanate from her kitchen. All food was eaten by all of them. We then go to his office and interview an elderly clerk who cheerfully supplies the address and, in his misogynistic rant, attributes the hung jury to fickle women and his overwork to the resignation of a clerk occasioned by her marriage. There is a vacancy at the office. And galloping on through Chapter 8, Whimsy commissions Bunter, his manservant and right-hand man, to deliver a message to Urquhart and insinuate himself into the kitchen and the affections of those below stairs, the better to gather inside information. It emerges that Bunter has already deduced the state and focus of Lord Peter's affections, and there are mutual assurances of ongoing loyalty in the event of matrimony. And so we slow from a gallop to a gentle trot into a full reading to experience the wonder that is Lord Peter Whimsey's venture into Bohemian London in the 1920s. Chapter 8. Bessie couldn't help it any more than you could or I could. Bessie couldn't help it though she tried to be good. Oh, so good. She was pretty as the heaven above. Oh, boy, and how she could love. Bessie had affection that was simply. Oh, but then don't go down in my mind, darling. Bessie couldn't help it. 
When Whimsy had any researches to do in Bohemia, it was his custom to enlist the help of Miss Marjorie Phelps. She made figurines in porcelain for a living and was therefore usually to be found either in her studio or in someone else's studio. A telephone call at 10am would probably catch her scrambling eggs over her own gas stove. It was true that there had been passages about the time of the Bologna Club affair between her and Lord Peter which made it a little embarrassing and unkind to bring her in on the subject of Harriet Vane, but with so little time in which to pick and choose his tools, Whimsy was past worrying about gentlemanly scruples. He put the call through and was relieved to hear her answering, Hello? Hello, Marjorie. This is Peter Whimsy. How goes it? Oh, fine, thanks. Glad to hear your melodious voice again. What can I do for the Lord High Investigator? Do you know one Vaughan, who is mixed up with the Philip Boy's murder mystery? Oh, Peter, are you on to that? How gorgeous! Which side are you taking? For the defence. Hooray! Why this pomp of jubilee? Well, it's much more exciting and difficult, isn't it? I'm afraid it is. Do you know Miss Vane, by the way? Yes and no. I've seen her with the boys' worn crowd. Like her? Oh, so-so. Like him? Boys, I mean? Never stirred a heartbeat. I said, did you like him? One didn't. One either fell for him or not. He wasn't the merry, bright-eyed pal of the period, you know. Oh, what's Vaughan? Hanger on. Oh, house dog. Nothing must interfere with the expansion of my friend the genius, that sort. Oh, don't keep saying, oh, do you want to meet the man Vaughan? That's not too much trouble. Well, turn up tonight with a taxi and we'll go the rounds. We're certain to drop across him somewhere. Also the rival gang, if you want them, Harriet Vane's supporters. Those girls who gave evidence? Yes. You like Eileen at Price, I think. She scorns everything in trousers, but she's a good friend at a pinch. I'll come, Marjorie. Will you dine with me? Peter, I'd adore to, but I don't think I will. I've got an awful lot to do. Right her. I'll roll round about nine, then. Accordingly, at nine o'clock, Whimsy found himself in a taxi with Marjorie Phelps headed for a round of the studios. I've been doing some intensive telephoning, said Marjorie, and I think we shall find him at the Kropotskys. They are pro-boys, Bolshevik and musical, and their drinks are bad, but their Russian tea is safe. Does the taxi wait? Yes, it sounds as if we might want to beat a retreat. Well, it's nice to be rich. It's down the court here, on the right, over the Petrovich's stable. Better let me grope first. They stumbled up a narrow and encumbered stair, at the top of which a fine confused noise of a piano, strings and the clashing of kitchen utensils announced that some sort of entertainment was in progress. Marjorie hammered loudly on a door and without waiting for an answer flung it open. Whimsy, entering on her heels, was struck in the face as if by an open hand 
by a thick muffling wave of heat, sound, smoke and the smell of frying. It was a very small room, dimly lit by a single electric bulb smothered in a lantern of painted glass and it was packed to suffocation with people whose silk legs, bare arms and pallid faces loomed at him like glowworms out of the obscurity. Coiling wreaths of tobacco smoke swam slowly to and fro in the midst. In one corner, an anthracite stove, glowing red and mephitical, vied with a roaring gas oven at another corner to raise the atmosphere to roasting pitch. On the stove stood a vast and steaming kettle. On a side table stood a vast and steaming samovar. Over the gas, a dim figure stood turning sausages in a pan with a fork while an assistant attended to something in the oven, which Whimsy, whose nose was selective, identified among the other fragrant elements in this compound atmosphere and identified rightly as kippers. At the piano, which stood just inside the door, a young man with bushy red hair was playing something of a Czechoslovakian flavour to a violin obligato by an extremely loose-jointed person of indeterminate sex in a fairhile jumper. Nobody looked round at their entrance. Marjorie picked her way over the scattered limbs on the floor and, selecting a lean young woman in red, bawled into her ear. The young woman nodded and beckoned to Whimsy. He negotiated a passage and was introduced to the lean woman by the simple formula, Here's Peter. This is Nina Kropotki. So pleased, shouted Manna Kropotki through the clamour. Sit by me. Vanya will get you something to drink. It's beautiful, yes? That is Stanislas, such a genius. His new work on the Piccadilly tube station. Great, Nesapa. Five days he was continually travelling upon the escalator to absorb the tone values. Colossal, yelled Whimsy. So, you think, ah, you can appreciate, you understand, it is really for the big orchestra. On the piano it is nothing, it needs the brass, the effects, the timpani, brrr, so, but one seizes the form, the outline, ah, it's Finishes. Superb! Magnificent! The enormous clatter ceased. The pianist mopped his face and glared haggardly round. The violinist put down its instrument and stood up, revealing itself by its legs to be female. The room exploded into conversation. Madame Kropotki leapt over her seated guests and embraced the perspiring Stanislas on both cheeks. The frying pan was lifted from the stove with a fusillade of spitting fat. A shriek went up for Vanya! And presently a cadaverous face was pushed down to Whimsy's and a guttural voice barked at him. What will you drink? While simultaneously a plate of kippers came hovering perilously over his shoulder. Thanks, said Whimsy. I have just dined. Just dined! He roared despairingly. Full up! Complete! Marjorie came to the rescue with a shriller voice and more determined refusal. Take those dreadful things away, Vanya! They make me sick! Give us some 
T, T, T. T, echoed the cadaverous man. They want tea. What do you think of Stanislas's tone poem? Strong, modern, eh? The sound of rebellion in the crowd. The clash, the revolt in the heart of the machinery. It gives the bourgeoisie something to think of. Oh, yes. Bah, said a voice in Whimsy's ear as the cadaverous man turned away. It is nothing. Bourgeois music, program music, pretty. You should hear Vrilovich's ecstasy on the letter Z. That is pure vibration with no antiquated pattern in it. Stanislas, he thinks much of himself, but it is as old as the hills. You can sense the resolution at the back of all his discords. Mere harmony and camouflage, nothing in it. But he takes them all in because he has red hair and reveals his bony structure. The speaker certainly did not err along these lines, for he was as bald and round as a billiard ball. Whimsy replied soothingly, Well, what can you do with the wretched and antiquated instruments of our orchestra? A diatonic scale? Bah! Thirteen miserable bourgeois semitones? Pooh! To express the infinite complexity of modern emotion, you need a scale of thirty-two notes to the octave. But why cling to the octave, said the fat man, till you can cast away the octave and its sentimental associations, you walk in fetters of conviction. That's the spirit, said Whimsy. I would dispense with all definite notes. After all, the cat does not need them for his midnight melodies, powerful and expressive as they are. The love hunger of the stallion takes no account of octave or interval in giving forth the cry of passion. It is only man, trammelled by stultifying convention. Oh, hello, Marjorie. Sorry, what is it? Come and talk to Ryland Vaughan, said Marjorie. I have told him you are a tremendous admirer of Philip Boy's books. Have you read them? Some of them, but I think I'm getting light-headed. You'll feel worse in an hour or so, so you'd better come now. She steered him to a remote spot near the gas oven, where an extremely elongated man was sitting curled up on a floor cushion, eating caviar out of a jar with a pickle fork. He greeted Whimsy with a sort of lugubrious enthusiasm. Hell of a place, he said. Hell of a business altogether. This stove's too hot. Have a drink. What the devil else can one do? I come here because Philip used to come here. Habit, you know. I hate it, but there's nowhere else to go. You knew him very well, of course, said Whimsy, seating himself in a waste paper basket and wishing he were wearing a bathing suit. I was his only real friend, said Ryland Vaughan mournfully. All the rest only cared to pick his brains. Apes, parrots, all the bloody lot of them. I've read his books and thought them very fine, said Whimsy with some sincerity. But he seemed to me an unhappy soul. Nobody understood him, said Vaughan. They called him difficult. Who wouldn't be difficult with so much to fight against? They sucked the blood out of him and his Damned thieves of publishers took every blasted coin they could lay their hands on. And then that bitch of a woman poisoned him. My God, what a life! 
Yes, but what made her do it? If she did do it. Oh, she did it all right. Sheer beastly spite and jealousy. That's all there was to it. Just because she couldn't write anything but tripe herself. Harriet Vane's got the bug all these damned women have got. Fancy they can do things. They hate a man and they hate his work. You'd think it would have been good enough for her to help and look after a genius like Phil, wouldn't you? Why, damn it, he used to ask her advice about his work. Her advice, good Lord. Did he take it? Take it? She wouldn't give it. Told him she never gave opinions on other authors' work. Other authors. The impudence of it. Of course, she was out of things among us all, but why couldn't she realise the difference between her mind and his? Of course, it was hopeless from the start for Philip to get entangled with that kind of woman. Genius must be served, not argued with. I warned him at the time, but he was infatuated. And then, to want to marry her. Why did he? asked Whimsy. Remains of a parsonical upbringing, I suppose. It was really pitiful. Besides, I think that fellow Urquhart did a lot of mischief. Sleek family lawyer. Do you know him? No. He got hold of him. Put up to it by the family, I imagine. I saw the influence creeping over Phil long before the real trouble began. Perhaps it's a good thing he's dead. It would have been ghastly to watch him turn conventional and settle down. When did this cousin start getting hold of him then? Oh, about two years ago, a little more perhaps. Asked him to dinner and that sort of thing. The minute I saw him, I knew he was out to ruin Philip, body and soul. What he wanted, what Phil wanted I mean, was the freedom and room to turn about in. But what with that woman and the cousin and the father in the background? Oh, well, it's no use crying about it now. His work is left and that's the best part of him. He left me that to look after at least. Harriet Fane didn't get her finger in that pie after all. I'm sure it's absolutely safe in your hands, said Whimsy. But when one thinks what there might have been, said Vaughan, turning his bloodshot eyes miserably on Lord Peter, it's enough to make one cut one's throat, isn't it? Whimsy expressed agreement. Uh, by the way, he said, you were with him all that last day till he went to his cousin's. You don't think he had anything on him in the way of poison or anything? I don't want to seem unkind, but he was unhappy. It would be rotten to think that he... No, said Vaughan, no. That I'll swear he never did. He would have told me. He trusted me in those last days. I shared all his thoughts. He was miserably hurt by that damned woman. But he wouldn't have gone without telling me or saying goodbye. And besides, he wouldn't have chosen that way. Why should he? I could have given him... He checked himself and glanced at Whimsy, but seeing nothing in his face beyond sympathetic attention, went on. I remember talking to him about drugs. Hyacinth, veronal, that sort of thing, he said. If I ever want to go out, Ryland, you'll show me the way. 
and I would have if he'd really wanted it. But arsenic? Philip, who loved beauty so much, do you think he would have chosen arsenic, the suburban poisoner's outfit? That's absolutely impossible. It's not an agreeable sort of thing to take, certainly, said Whimsy. Look here, said Vaughan, hoarsely and impressively. He had been putting a constant succession of brandies on top of the caviar and was beginning to lose his resolve. Look here, see this. He pulled a small bottle from his breast pocket. That's waiting till I've finished editing Phil's books. It's a comfort to have it there, to look at, you know, peaceful. Go out through the ivory gate. That's classical. They brought me up on the classics. These people would laugh at a fellow, but you needn't tell them I said it. Funny the way it sticks. Ten de banque, manos ripie, ulterioris amore. What's that bit about the souls thronging thick as leaves in Vallombrosa? No, that's Melton. Amorioris altore. Oh, damn it. Poor Phil. Here Mr Vaughan burst into tears and patted the little bottle. Whimsy, whose head and ears were thumping as though he were sitting in an engine room, got up softly and withdrew. Somebody had begun a Hungarian song and the stove was white hot. He made signals of distress to Marjorie, who was sitting in a corner with a group of men. One of them appeared to be reading his own poems, with his mouth nearly in her ear, and another was sketching something on the back of an envelope, to the accompaniment of yelps of merriment from the rest. The noise they made disconcerted the singer, who stopped in the middle of a bar and cried angrily, Ah, this noise! These interruptions, they are intolerable! I lose myself! Stop! I begin all over again. From the beginning. Marjorie sprang up, apologising. I'm a brute. We're not keeping your menagerie in order, Nina. We're being perfect nuisances. Forgive me, Mariah, I'm in a bad temper. I'd better pick up Peter and toddle away. Come and sing to me another day, darling, when I'm feeling better and there is more room for my feelings to expand. Good night, Nina. We've enjoyed it frightfully. And Boris... That poem's the best thing you've ever done, only I couldn't hear it properly. Peter, tell them what a rotten mood I'm in tonight and take me home. That's right, said Whimsy. Nervy, you know. Bad effect on the manners and so on. Manners, said a bearded gentleman suddenly and loudly. Off for the bourgeois. Quite right, said Whimsy. Beastly bad form. Gives you repressions in the whatnot. Come on, Marjorie, or we shall all be getting polite. I begin again, said the singer, from the beginning. Phew, said Whimsy on the staircase. Yes, I know. I think I'm a perfect martyr to put up with it. Anyway, you've seen Vaughan. Nice dopey specimen, isn't he? Yes, but I don't think he murdered Philip Boys, do you? I had to see him to make sure. Where do we go next? We'll try Joey Trimble's. That's the stronghold of the opposition show. Joey Trimbles occupied a studio over a muse. Here there was the same crowd, the same smoke, more kippers, still more drinks and still more heat and conversation. 
In addition, there was a blaze of electric light, a gramophone, five dogs and a strong smell of oil paints. Sylvia Marriott was expected. Whimsy found himself involved in a discussion of free love, D.H. Lawrence, the prurience of prudery and the immoral significance of long skirts. In time, however, he was rescued by the arrival of a masculine-looking middle-aged woman with a sinister smile and a pack of cards who proceeded to tell everybody's fortune. The company gathered around her and at the same time a girl came in and announced that Sylvia had sprained her ankle and couldn't come. Everyone said warmly, Oh, how sickening, poor dear, and forgot the subject immediately. We'll scoot off, said Marjorie. Never mind about saying goodbye. Nobody marks you. It's good luck about Sylvia because she'll be at home and can't escape us. I sometimes wish they'd all sprain their ankles. And yet, you know, nearly all these people are doing very good work. Even the Kapotki crowd. I used to enjoy this kind of thing myself once. We're getting old, you and I, said Whimsy. Sorry, that's rude. But do you know, I'm getting on for 40, Marjorie. You wear well. But you're looking a bit fagged tonight, Peter dear. What's the matter? Nothing at all but middle age. You'll be settling down if you're not careful. Oh, I've been settled for years. With Bunter and the books. I envy you sometimes, Peter. Whimsy said nothing. Marjorie looked at him almost in alarm and tucked her arm in his. Peter, do please be happy. I mean, you've always been the comfortable sort of person that nothing could touch. Don't alter, will you? That was the second time Whimsy had been asked not to alter himself. The first time, the request had exalted him. This time, it terrified him. As the taxi lurched along the rainy embankment, he felt for the first time the dull and angry helplessness, which is the first warning stroke of the triumph of mutability. Like the poisoned Athulf in The Fool's Tragedy, he could have cried, Oh, I am changing, changing, fearfully changing. Whether his present enterprise failed or succeeded, things would never be the same again. It was not that his heart would be broken by a disastrous love. He had outlived the luxurious agonies of youthful blood, and in this very freedom from illusion, he recognised the loss of something. From now on, every hour of light-heartedness would be not a prerogative, but an achievement. One more axe or case-bottle or fowling piece rescued, Crusoe fashion, from a sinking ship. For the first time, too, he doubted his own power to carry through what he had undertaken. His personal feelings had been involved before this in investigations, but they had never before clouded his mind. He was fumbling, grasping uncertainly here and there at fugitive and mocking possibilities. He asked questions at random, doubtful of his object, and the shortness of the time, which would once have stimulated, now frightened and confused him. I'm sorry, Marjorie, he said, rousing himself. I'm afraid I'm being damned dull. Oxygen, starvation, probably. Do you mind if we have the window down a bit? That's better. Give me good food and a little air to breathe, and I will caper, goat-like, into dishonourable old age. People will point at me as I creep 
bald and yellow and supported by discreet corsetry, into the nightclubs of my great-grandchildren, and they'll say, Look, darling, there's wicked Lord Peter, celebrated for never having spoken a reasonable word for the last ninety-six years. He was the only aristocrat who escaped the guillotine of the revolution of 1960. We keep him as a pet for the children. And I shall wag my head and display my up-to-date dentures and say, Aha! They don't have the fun we used to have in my young days, the poor, well-regulated creatures. There won't be any nightclubs for you to creep into if they're as disciplined as that. Oh yes, nature will have her revenge. They will slink away from the government communal games to play solitaire in catacombs over a bowl of unsterilised skim milk. Is that the place? Yes, I hope there's someone to let us in at the bottom if Sylvia's bust her leg. Yes, I hear footsteps. Oh, it's you, Eileenud. How's Sylvia? Pretty all right, only swelled up. The ankle, that is, coming up. Is she visible? Yes, perfectly respectable. Good, because I'm bringing Lord Peter Whimsy up too. Oh, said the girl, how do you do? You detect things, don't you? Have you come for the body or anything? Lord Peter's looking into Harriet Vane's business for her. Is he? That's good. Glad somebody's doing something about it. She was a short, stout girl with a pugnacious nose and a twinkle. What do you say it was? I say he did it himself. He was the self-pitying sort, you know. Hello, Sil. Here's Marjorie with a bloke who's going to get Harriet out of jug. Produce him instantly, was the reply from within. The door opened upon a small bed-sitting room, furnished with the severest simplicity and inhabited by a pale, spectacled young woman in a Morris chair, her bandaged foot stretched out upon a packing case. I can't get up because, as Jenny Red said, my back's bagged and my leg's queer. Who's the champion, Marjorie? Whimsy was introduced and Eileen at Price immediately inquired rather truculently, Can he drink coffee, Marjorie, or does he require masculine refreshment? He's perfectly godly, righteous and sober and drinks anything but cocoa and fizzy lemonade. Oh, I only ask because some of your male belongings need stimulating and we haven't got the wherewithal and the pub's just closing. She stumped over to a cupboard and Sylvia said, Don't mind, Eileenid. She likes to treat him rough. Tell me, Lord Peter, have you found any clues or anything? I don't know, said Whimsy. I've put a few ferrets down a few holes. I hope something may come up the other end. Have you seen the cousin yet, the Urquhart creature? Got an appointment with him for tomorrow. Why? Sylvia's theory is that he did it, said Alunard. That's interesting. Why? Female intuition, said Alunard bluntly. She doesn't like the way he does his hair. I only said it was too sleek to be true protested Sylvia. And who else could it have been? I'm sure it wasn't Ryland Vaughan. He's an obnoxious ass, but he is genuinely heartbroken about it all. Eileen sniffed scornfully and departed to fill a kettle at a tap on the landing. And whatever Eileen thinks, I can't believe Phil Boys did it himself. Why not? asked Whimsy. He talked such a lot, said Sylvia, and he really had too high an opinion of himself. I don't think he would have willfully deprived the world of the privilege of reading his books. He would, said Arnunad. 
he'd do it out of spite to make the grown-ups sorry. No thanks, as Whimsy advanced to carry the kettle. I'm quite capable of carrying six pints of water. Crushed again, said Whimsy. I, Luna, disapproves of conventional courtesies between the sexes, said Marjorie. Very well, replied Whimsy amiably. I will adopt an attitude of passive decoration. Have you any idea, Miss Marriott, why this over-sleek solicitor would wish to make away with his cousin? Not the faintest. I merely proceed on the old Sherlock Holmes basis that when you have eliminated the impossible, then whatever remains, however improbable, must be true. Dupin said that before Sherlock. I grant the conclusion, but in this case I question the premise. No sugar, thank you. I thought all men liked to make their coffee into syrup. Yes, but then I am very unusual. Haven't you noticed it? I haven't had much time to observe you, but I'll count the coffee as a point in your favour. Thanks frightfully. I say, can you people tell me just what was Miss Vane's reaction to the murder? Well, Sylvia considered a moment. When he died, she was upset, of course. She was startled, said Miss Price, but it's my opinion she was thankful to be rid of him, and no wonder, selfish beast. He'd made use of her and nagged her to death for a year and insulted her at the end, and he was one of your greedy sort that wouldn't let go. She was glad, Sylvia. What's the good of denying it? Yes, perhaps it was a relief to know it was finished with, but she didn't know that he'd been murdered. No, the murder spoilt it a bit, if it was a murder, which I don't believe. Philip Boyce was always determined to be a victim, and it was very irritating of him to succeed in the end. I believe that's what he did it for. People do do that kind of thing, said Whimsy thoughtfully, but it's difficult to prove. I mean, a jury is much more inclined to believe in some tangible reason. To believe... I mean, a jury is much more inclined to believe in some tangible sort of reason, like money. But I can't find any money in this case. Eileen had laughed. No, there never was much money except what Harriet made. The ridiculous public didn't appreciate Philip Boys. He couldn't forgive her that, you know. Didn't it come in useful? Of course, but he resented it all the same. She ought to have been ministering to his work, not making money for them both with her own independent trash. But that's men all over. You haven't much opinion of us, what? I've known too many borrowers, said Eileen at Price, and too many that wanted their hands held. All the same, women are just as bad, or they wouldn't put up with it. Thank heaven I've never borrowed and never lent, except to women, and they pay back. People who work hard usually do pay back, I fancy, said Whimsy, except geniuses. Women geniuses don't get coddled, said Miss Price grimly, so they learn not to expect it. We're getting rather off the subject, aren't we? said Marjorie. No, replied Whimsy. I'm getting a certain amount of light on the central figures in the problem, what journalists like to call the protagonists. His mouth gave a wry little twist. One gets a lot of illumination in that fierce light, beats upon a scaffold. Oh, don't say that, pleaded Sylvia. 
a telephone rang somewhere outside, and I Lunard Price went out to answer it. I Lunard's anti-man, said Sylvia, but she's a very reliable person. Whimsy nodded. But she's wrong about Phil. She couldn't stick him, naturally, and she's apt to think... It's for you, Lord Peter, said Ilunard, returning. Fly at once, all is known, you're wanted by Scotland Yard. Whimsy hastened out. That you, Peter? I've been scouring London for you. We found the pub. Never. Fact. And we're on the track of a packet of white powder. Good God. Can you run down first thing tomorrow? We may have it for you. I will skip like a ram and hop like a high hill. We'll beat you yet, Mr. Bleeding Chief Inspector Parker. I hope you will, said Parker amiably and rang off. Whimsy pranced back into the room. Miss Price's price has gone to odds on, he announced. It's suicide, fifty to one and no takers. I'm going to grin like a dog and run about the city. I'm sorry I can't join you, said Sylvia Marriott, but I'm glad if I'm wrong. I'm glad if I'm right, said I Lunard Price stolidly. And you are right and I am right and everything is quite all right, said Whimsy. Marjorie Phelps looked at him and said nothing. She suddenly felt as though something inside her had been put through a ringer. Bessie couldn't help it any more than you could. Or I could. Bessie couldn't help it though she tried to be good. Oh, so good. She was pretty as the heaven above. Oh, boy, and how she could love. Bessie had affection that was simply. Oh, but then don't go down in my mind, darling. Bessie couldn't help it any more than you could. Or I could. When she smiled. You were bound to fall, that's all. A boy kissed Bessie in the parlour one night. Oh, she was metal little round, don't be mine. Bessie couldn't help it any more than you could, or I could. Close your eyes. Listen, 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 listen. I can reliably predict that some of the following material will be triggering for some of you in varying degrees. We don't have to pull the trigger. Come along, just show some mercy. The whole point of these warnings is to give you choice. You can plan for the time and place to listen so you can be assured of having the resources you need. Or, alternatively, you can just not bother. He's buggered off. So he has, he's scarpered. Brave got off and run away. No! Bravely ran away, away. I didn't! When danger reared its ugly head, he bravely turned his tail no. and fled. Yet brave so Robin turned about. I didn't. He chickened out, bravely taking. I to never his did. Feet. He beat a very brave retreat. Oh, the brave so Robin. I never. Please forgive me if it emerges that I have misread the odd word here or there. This isn't legal advice. This isn't to be relied upon. These documents are on the internet. If you're thinking you need to do something formal with them, 
read them properly and get proper legal advice. Judy Dio read stuff aloud is this time coming from the Sentencing Advisory Council website. The council's main mission is to bridge the gap between the community, the courts and government by informing, educating and advising on sentencing issues. Uh, and there's an Act of Parliament that, that brought it into being. You can go to the website and look at the About Us section and see the other jurisdictions where similar things exist. Have a look at the council directors who are independent of government and the courts and what nice pictures they have and so on. I'm going to read aloud the section headed Sentencing Principles, Purposes, Factors. Sentencing Principles Sentencing principles form the basis of sentencing decisions. These principles have developed through legislation and common law, court decisions. Some of these principles include parsimony. The sentence must be no more severe than is necessary to meet the purposes of sentencing. Proportionality. The overall punishment must be proportionate to the gravity of the offending behaviour. Parity. Similar sentences should be imposed for similar offences committed by offenders in similar circumstances. Totality. Where an offender is to serve more than one sentence, the overall sentence must be just and appropriate in light of the overall offending behaviour. Sentencing purposes. Section 5.1 of the Sentencing Act 1991 sets out the only purposes for sentencing an adult in Victoria. These purposes are just punishment, to punish the offender to an extent and in a way that is just in all the circumstances. Deterrence, to deter the offender, specific deterrence, or other people, general deterrence, from committing offences of the same or a similar character. Rehabilitation, to establish conditions that the court considers will enable the offender's rehabilitation. Denunciation, to denounce, condemn or censure the offending conduct. Community protection, to protect the community from the offender. Rehabilitation is the principal consideration for sentencing children. Section 3621 of the Children, Youth and Families Act 2005 Victoria outlines the consideration that must be taken into account when sentencing a child. The need to strengthen and preserve the relationship between the child and the child's family. The desirability of allowing the child to live at home the desirability of allowing the education, training and employment of the child to continue without interruption or disturbance, the need to minimise the stigma to the child resulting from a court decision, the suitability of the sentence to the child, if appropriate, ensuring the child is aware of their need to take responsibility for any action that is against the law, 
if appropriate, the need to protect the community or any other person from the violent or other wrongful acts of the child. Sentencing Factors Section 5.2 of the Sentencing Act 1991 Victoria sets out the factors that must be taken into account when sentencing an adult in Victoria. These factors include the maximum penalty for the offence, the standard sentence, if any, for the offence, current sentencing practices, the nature and gravity of the offence, the offender's culpability and degree of responsibility for the offence, whether the crime was motivated by hatred or prejudice, the impact of the offence on any victim of the offence, the personal circumstances of any victim of the offence, any injury, loss or damage resulting directly from the offence, whether the offender pleaded guilty to the offence, the offender's previous character, any aggravating or mitigating factors. When weighing up the nature and gravity of the offence, a judge or magistrate might consider the offender's intention, the consequences of the offence, the use of weapons, any breach of trust, the offender's history of offending, the offender's response to previous court orders, alcohol or drug addiction. Aggravating factors increase the seriousness of the offence or the offender's culpability. Mitigating factors reduce the seriousness of the offence or the offender's culpability. The law allows courts to reduce a sentence if a person pleads guilty. If the court gives a discount for a guilty plea, the judge or magistrate must state what the sentence would have been without the guilty plea. I'm omitting the next two sections under the heading Sentencing Law in Victoria. I'm omitting the details on maximum penalties and sentencing schemes and going directly to the next category, which is guilty pleas and sentencing. One of the many factors a judge or magistrate must consider when sentencing is a guilty plea. This includes whether the offender has pleaded guilty to the offence or indicated that they intended to plead guilty and at what stage of the proceedings. The earlier in the proceedings the offender pleads guilty, the greater the reduction they will receive in their sentence. When sentencing an offender who pleads guilty, Victorian courts are almost always required to state what sentence they would have imposed if the offender had not pleaded guilty. This is provided for in Section 6AAA of the Sentencing Act 1991 Victoria and Section 362A of the Children, Youth and Families Act 2005 Victoria. Courts in the adult jurisdiction have to do this for all custodial sentences, fines of 10 penalty units or more and aggregate fines of 20 penalty units or more. The Children's Court also has to do this for Youth Justice Centre Orders or Youth Residential Centre Orders and for Youth Attendance Orders. 
For adult offenders, the court only needs to indicate the sentence that it would have imposed, but for the guilty plea, in relation to the overall sentence and any non-parole period. If the offender is sentenced for more than one offence at the same time, the court does not need to indicate the sentence that would have been imposed for each individual charge. In the children's court, the magistrate must specify the sentence that would have been imposed for each individual charge. We examined the effects of guilty plea on sentencing outcomes in Victoria in our Guilty Pleas in the Higher Courts, Rates, Timing and Discounts, 2015. If you go to the website, you'll find that that is a link that you can click on. Sentence Indication Sentence indications allow offenders to obtain a broad indication of the sentence they would likely face if they pleaded guilty to the offences. There are differences in the sentence indication schemes that operate in the higher courts, the county and supreme courts, and the magistrates court. Sentence indication in the higher courts. In the higher courts, an accused can apply for a sentence indication at any point in the proceedings after filing an indictment, written charges. The accused can only apply for a sentence indication if the prosecution consents. The Higher Court's Sentence Indication Scheme is provided for in Part 5.6 of the Criminal Procedure Act 2009, Victoria. If the judge agrees to give a sentence indication... They are given an agreed summary of the facts and any other relevant material. The judge then indicates whether they would be likely to impose an immediate custodial sentence if the accused pleads guilty at that point. Sentence Indication in the Magistrates' Court The Magistrates' Court Sentence Indication Scheme is broader than the scheme in the higher courts. In the Magistrates' Court, a sentence indication may be given at any time during the proceedings. This includes an indication of whether or not the court would be likely to impose an immediate sentence of imprisonment, the type of sentence that the court would be likely to impose, for example, a community correction order. The Magistrates' Court Sentence Indication Scheme is provided for in Division 3 of Part 3.3 of the Criminal Procedures Act 2009, Victoria. Concurrency and Cumulation Offenders are commonly sentenced for multiple charges at the same court hearing. This can be because multiple charges arise from multiple incidents. For example, a series of breaking and entering offences might result in multiple charges of burglary and aggravated burglary. Multiple charges arise from a single incident For example, a bank robbery might result in charges of armed robbery, possession of an unlicensed firearm, making threats to kill and dangerous driving. The principal sentence in a case with multiple charges is the most severe sentence imposed for a charge within the case. The court will order individual sentences imposed for any other charges in the case to be served with the principal sentence concurrently, cumulatively or partially cumulatively and partially concurrently.
When the principal sentence is added to the cumulative portion of any other sentences, the court will decide the total effective sentence, also called the head sentence, to be served by the offender. What is a concurrent sentence? Concurrent sentences are served at the same time. For example, if a person is sentenced to nine months imprisonment for the most serious charge, charge one, and six months imprisonment for another charge, charge two, to be served concurrently, the total effective sentence will be nine months. Charge equals nine months. Charge two, six months to be served at the same time. Total effective sentence, nine months. What is a cumulative sentence? Cumulative sentences are served one after another. For example, if a person is sentenced to nine months imprisonment for the most serious charge, charge one, and six months imprisonment for another charge, charge two, to be served cumulatively, the total effective sentence will be 15 months. Charge one equals nine months. Charge two equals six months to be served after total effective sentencing, 15 months. Partial cumulation. When a court orders partial cumulation, Part of one sentence will be served at the same time as the principal sentence and the other part will be served after the principal sentence has ended. For example, if a person is sentenced to nine months imprisonment for the most serious charge, charge one, and six months imprisonment for another charge, charge two, with two months partial cumulation, the total effective sentence will be 11 months. Charge 1 equals 9 months. Charge 2 equals 6 months, 4 months to be served at the same time and 2 months to be served after. Total effective sentence, 11 months. Why are sentences served concurrently or cumulatively? The Sentencing Act 1991 Victoria creates a series of presumptions about whether particular sentences are to be served concurrently or cumulatively. The default position is that sentences of imprisonment are generally to be served concurrently. This is unless an exception applies, such as the offender is classified as a serious offender or the offence was committed while the offender was on parole or bail. Mental impairment and sentencing. Mental impairment can be very relevant to sentencing. It is an important part of an offender's personal circumstances and is one of many factors a court must take into account when sentencing an offender. Some sentencing orders are only available if the offender has a mental illness. Mental impairment as a sentencing factor. The term impaired mental functioning is defined in Section 10A of the Sentencing Act 1991 Victoria to include a mental illness, intellectual disability, acquired brain injury, autism spectrum disorder or a neurological impairment 
such as dementia. In the case of R versus Verdens and Ors, 2007, VSCA 102, the link is available to this judgment on the website, the Court of Appeal stated that mental impairment was relevant to sentencing in at least five ways. These are known as Verdens principles. Mental impairment could 1. Reduce the offender's moral culpability but not their legal responsibility for the offence. This could affect the weight given to just punishment and denunciation as purposes of sentencing the offender. 2. Influence the type of sentence that could be imposed and the conditions in which the sentence could be served. 3. Reduce the weight given to deterrence as a purpose of sentencing. This would depend on the nature and severity of the mental impairment and how this impairment affected the mental capacity of the offender at the time of their offending and at the time of sentencing. 4. Increase the hardship experienced by an offender in prison if they suffered from mental impairment at the time of sentencing. 5. Justify a less severe sentence where there was a serious risk that imprisonment could have a significant adverse effect on the offender's mental health. Orders for offenders with mental illness. Section 3 of the Sentencing Act 1991 Victoria states that the definition of mental illness is the same as the definition in the Mental Health Act 2014 Victoria. That Act defines a mental illness as a medical condition that is characterised by a significant disturbance of thought, mood, perception or memory. If an offender has a mental illness, two additional types of order can be made. A court assessment order, a court secure treatment order. Court assessment order. A court assessment order is made before sentencing. The order requires a person to be assessed by a psychiatrist. This may involve detaining the person at a mental health service. The court decides whether to make a court secure treatment order or impose another type of sentence based on the psychiatrist's assessment. Court secure treatment order. A court secure treatment order requires a person to be detained and treated at a mental health service. A court imposes this type of order where the offender has a mental illness and needs mental health treatment to prevent serious deterioration in their health or to prevent serious harm to the offender or another person. A court-secured treatment order can only be made where imprisonment would have been imposed had the offender not had a mental illness. The court must be satisfied that no other less restrictive sentence is available for the person to receive the treatment that they need. The court cannot impose a court-secure treatment order for a period longer than the term 
of imprisonment that the court would have otherwise imposed. Further information about court assessment orders and court secure treatment orders is available at the Department of Health's Mental Health Act Handbook. If you go to the website, you can click on links to those particular topics. Sentencing Remarks At the end of a sentencing hearing, the judge or magistrate summarises the case, imposes a sentence and outlines the reasons for the sentence. The judge or the magistrate makes their sentencing remarks in open court for anyone in the court, including media, to hear. What do sentencing remarks contain? Sentencing remarks often include a summary of the offence, including aggravating and mitigating circumstances. Relevant factors about the offender, including their background and prospects for rehabilitation. Reference to the impact of the offence on any victim or victims. Reference to the purpose or purposes that the judge or magistrate intends the sentence to achieve. When sentencing an offender who has pleaded guilty, the judge or magistrate usually includes a statement indicating what the sentence would have been had the offender not pleaded guilty. Such statements are required under Section 8 AAA of the Sentencing Act 1991, Victoria. What is the purpose of sentencing remarks? Judges and magistrates use sentencing remarks to explain the reasons for the sentence to those involved in a case. The remarks help offenders to understand why they have received a particular sentence. The remarks help the community, particularly the victim, to understand the process of sentencing. The judge's or magistrate's reasons lets the defence and prosecution see how much their arguments have been understood and accepted as the basis for the judge's or magistrate's decision. Reasons for a sentence can help influence how similar cases might be decided in future. In this way, sentencing remarks promote consistency in sentencing. They can also help an appellate court, a court that hears appeals, determine if any errors were made in the sentencing process. Are sentencing remarks made available to the public? In the higher courts, judges give their sentencing remarks verbally at the sentencing hearing. The sentencing remarks are recorded and transcribed. Some judges may make written copies available at the hearing and may distribute these to the parties involved. Supreme Court sentencing remarks are usually published on the Supreme Court website and or the Australian Legal Information Institute, OSTL11 website. You can click on all these links by going to the Sentencing Council of Victorian website. Similarly, significant county court sentencing remarks are often published on the county court website. For some high-profile cases, the higher courts will stream sentencing remarks via their respective websites so that media and interested members of the community can hear the judge's sentencing remarks delivered in court. And as an aside that is not on the website, 
I certainly tuned in to the sentencing remarks given when George Pell was convicted. In the Magistrates' Court, the Magistrates' sentencing remarks are recorded to audio but not transcribed. Recordings are retained for 12 months from the date of the hearing. Digital copies of recordings are available from the Magistrates' Court for a fee. In the Children's Court, the Magistrate gives their sentencing remarks verbally at the sentencing hearing. No transcripts of the hearings are published. The remarks are recorded to audio and any party to the proceedings may apply for a copy. However, release of a recording requires the signed authorisation of a judicial officer and payment of a fee. Legislation, suppression orders or other restrictions may mean that some sentencing remarks cannot be published. Where sentencing remarks are available, a court may remove personal data or identifying information. These excerpts from a judgment delivered by Her Honour Justice Meryl Sexton of the County Court of Victoria are taken from a website, a link to which you will find on the podcast feed and it's at www.austi.edu.au You then click through all the various places until you find the judgments that you want to read, or all sorts of things about the Victorian courts that are on that website. But the actual link to the entire judgment is on the podcast feed. I'm not reading the entire judgment to keep faith with the undertaking I have not to tell stories from the trenches, not to tell explicit stories. Part of the judgment outlines in detail the offending and it's very, very unpleasant reading. So you're not going to be given it here, but you can go to it there. This detailing of the offending is part of the requirement for the judge to admonish. Paragraph 1. At the outset, I remind those listening that publication of anything likely to identify the complainant in a sexual offences case is prohibited by an Act of Parliament. In my published remarks, pseudonyms will be used for her name and the names of her family members. Paragraph 2. Luke McPherson, on the 5th of June 2019, after a trial, a jury found you guilty of one charge of sexual penetration of a child under 12 years. This is an offence for which a term of imprisonment must be imposed. The maximum sentence is 25 years imprisonment. The offence is a standard sentence offence. That means I must consider the standard sentence of 10 years imprisonment amongst the other factors to take into account when deciding what the appropriate sentence is in your case. Paragraph 3. I will briefly outline your offending. You had known Ted Prendergast for many years and through him came to know his wife Carol 
for years and later knew their three children from birth. Verity, their eldest child, was eight years when you offended against her. I am omitting paragraphs 4, 5 and 6. Our focus is on the sentencing remarks and we will take it as read that in detailing the offences, Her Honour admonished the convicted offender. Paragraph 7. I assess the gravity of your offending as being a very serious criminal act, which, while it only lasted a relatively short time, constitutes a gross breach of the trust in you held by both Verity and her parents. Further, you took advantage of the moments alone with her to commit the crime, did so in her own bedroom, in her house, where she was entitled to feel safe, and persisted in the act, trying to overcome her objection by saying you had done it before, and then continued for a time, despite her protests. The comment about doing it before seemed to have confused Verity, as can be seen from her evidence-in-chief, where she says she did not remember it happening, and the comment has been a factor in the impact on her. There has been a considerable impact on Verity and on her parents. Verity appears in the recorded evidence taken the day after the crime as an intelligent, confident little girl, but unsurprisingly was unable to understand why someone she thought so much of had done this to her. In her impact statement, in her own words, she sets out very clearly the impact on her. She feels she cannot trust anyone other than her family, school friends and teachers. She is sad that it happened and angry for what you did and what you said to her. She says she thought she could trust you and now she wishes she had never met you. Paragraph 9 18 months after the event, her father describes a girl whose demeanour has changed, who now talks back to her parents, who has fallen behind in her schoolwork, lacks concentration and becomes uncharacteristically angry, including at her siblings. Because you violated Verity in her bedroom, She was having difficulty settling down in there at night and her parents have bought a new bed and redecorated the room in an attempt to deal with the impact. Paragraph 10. When it comes to children, it is presumed that they suffer harm from a sexual offence being committed against them. The harm can be long-term and serious and both physical and psychological and include future harm. This is something about which you know because of your own abusive experience as a teenager. Because it is only 18 months since the event, with Verity still aged only 10, it is impossible to know the possible future harm you have caused her. It is to be hoped that she is the resilient child she appeared to be. Paragraph 11. I take into account the harm caused to her as far as is known at this time. I wish Verity and her family well for the future. 12. In deciding the appropriate sentence, I also take into account your personal circumstances. These give some insight into how a man with no relevant criminal history could commit a sexual offence for the first time in his thirties, against the child of an old friend. Paragraph 13. You are now aged 
32 years and have been in a long-term relationship with your partner who gave evidence in the defence case at the trial and who continues to love and support you. You are also supported by your mother and stepfather and your younger brother, with all of whom you now have a very close relationship. Your biological father separated from your mother when you were five years old and you have had only occasional contact with him. Paragraph 14. You struggled in your education, attending a number of different schools until you completed Year 10 at a special school with the assistance of teacher's aides. You had some problems with your behaviour, leading to a diagnosis of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD, and after an incident involving you and your brother when you were aged about 12, the Department of Human Services became involved, your mother felt unable to manage you in the circumstances, and you were placed in out-of-home care until the age of 18. Paragraph 15. Your teenage years were spent in a number of foster homes, possibly as many as 32 placements. You found yourself in a placement at about the age of 15 where the male carer appeared to help you with many things in your life and you developed a close relationship. That carer then sexually abused you over a number of days, which was a gross breach of his carer role and of your trust, leading you to this day to be confused about your feelings for that man. You told a teacher about the abuse not long after it happened and the carer was charged, you gave evidence in court and he was convicted. Paragraph 16 You left school at age 16 shortly after you were sexually abused because you could no longer focus but then, to your credit, successfully completed both a panel beating apprenticeship and then a mechanics apprenticeship. You have worked in a number of driving jobs but stopped working when you were charged with this offence as you were unable to focus. You report that you have been in and out of jobs all your life because you get frustrated easily and because you often felt depressed and anxious. Most positions have been six months to a year in length when you either find another job and move on or resign or get fired. Paragraph 17. There were a large number of references tendered on your behalf, which I have read and take into account. They are from friends and family members, many of whom I assume are here in court today amongst the large group. They all consider you to be a different person to the one who committed this crime and speak of you in the most favourable terms. The ongoing support of these people is vital to your rehabilitation. Paragraph 18. I received reports from two psychologists, Dr. Pang, whose recent report detailed your attendances for counselling for anxiety between November 2018 and April 2019 in the context of the police investigation into this offence, and Ms. Minard, who conducted a psychological assessment in August 2019 and reached a number of opinions about your psychological state. Paragraph 19. Your counsel, 
relied on Ms. Minard's opinions to submit that I should find that your moral culpability for the offending is somewhat reduced by reason of your multiple diagnoses, and also that these should also lead me to finding first that a term of imprisonment will be more onerous than if you did not have these diagnoses, and second, that there is a serious risk of your mental health deteriorating further during your time in prison. Paragraph 20. At the plea hearing, the prosecutor conceded that these last two points are made out on the material from Miss Minard, but submitted that there was insufficient evidence for me to make the finding about a reduction in your moral culpability as a result of impaired mental functioning at the time of the offending. I agreed the report of Miss Minard needed further explanation and it was arranged that Ms. Minard attend court on another day to give evidence and be questioned about her opinions. Paragraph 21 Following her evidence, your counsel and the prosecutor provided me with written submissions. Both maintained their original positions. Paragraph 22 I have carefully considered Ms. Minard's evidence and all of the submissions. I accept her evidence that now, in late 2019, you have multiple diagnoses affecting your mental health. Ms. Minard conducted tests and reached her own diagnosis as to you having an adjustment disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and adult ADHD, as at August 2019. Paragraph 23. In her opinion, the adjustment disorder arises from the impact on your mental health of being investigated, charged and found guilty of an offence that you still say was accidental. Small omission from the text. The PTSD arises from the ongoing impact on you of your own sexual abuse as a teenager. The OCD possibly arises from your increased anxiety at being imprisoned with other sex offenders, given your PTSD from your own abuse. And the ADHD is something Ms. Minard considered you have struggled with all of your life. Paragraph 24. On the basis of her report and evidence, I find that all these disorders will make a prison sentence weigh more heavily on you and that there is a serious risk of prison having a significant adverse effect on your mental health. As a result, the sentence I will impose on you will be less than for someone without your mental ill health who committed the same offence in the same circumstances. Paragraph 25 Ms Minard said in her report at page 8 that it was her opinion that at the time of the offending you were suffering from PTSD, depression, anxiety and ongoing language disorder and ADHD. But she said that it was unclear how these diagnoses may have contributed to your offending. She felt it likely that your own confusion around sexual identity, psychological symptoms of PTSD, depression, probably arising from the disrupted time in multiple placements as a teenager, as well as your lack of verbal communication skills, 
all contributed to your offending behaviour. She said you have a complex array of psychological factors for which you have not engaged in treatment and you lack the insight about the impact of these issues upon your life. Paragraph 26. She continued in the next paragraph in her report to say that it was unclear to her how these pre-existing issues related specifically to your offending, given your ongoing denial, but that studies showed experiencing sexual abuse in childhood has been found to be correlated with the perpetration of child sexual abuse later in life and, although not causal, may have an impact. She thought the impulsivity factor of ADHD may also have been a contributing factor and, in addition, considered your experience of abuse appeared to have contributed to you having a confused sense of boundaries and difficulty with monitoring your own behaviour, which she thought may also have contributed to your offending. Paragraph 27. In her evidence, Miss Minard said that her current diagnoses and your previously diagnosed depression, anxiety, language disorder and Tourette's syndrome are all illnesses or disorders that are long-standing in nature and do not come and go. However, she did not observe any symptoms of Tourette's syndrome on her assessment. Said that while the material gave strong indications that you still struggle with language, the language disorder needed to be confirmed by a speech therapist and said that she exercised her clinical judgment to consider the depression and anxiety to be long-standing but was of the view that they may not have reached clinical proportions until you were charged, obviously after the time of the offending and then became symptoms of the adjustment disorder she diagnosed in August 2019. Paragraph 28. It seems because these illnesses and disorders, other than the OCD, had been previously diagnosed and are generally of long standing, and Miss Minard observed and diagnosed some of them in August 2019, she formed the view that you were suffering from all of them in April 2018. I do accept that you have a complex array of psychological factors now and probably had at least PTSD in April 2018. But I am not satisfied that there is evidence from Ms Minard or any other source of a causal connection between those disorders and the offending or for me to find that at the time of the offending you had an impairment of your mental functioning arising from any of these disorders, such as to reduce your moral culpability. It therefore remains at a high level. Paragraph 29. I will, however, take Ms Minard's evidence into account as providing possible explanations for you to take the opportunity to offend against your old friend's eight-year-old daughter, when you have never done anything like this before. The conditions to which Ms Minard referred to provide possible explanations, but not excuses. Paragraph 30. 
Before I leave Ms Minard's report and evidence, I note that she made an assessment of your risk of reoffending based on her clinical judgment and considered it to be moderate to low risk, rising to a moderate risk given your inability to admit the offence after you have been found guilty of it. Paragraph 31. I have mentioned that you have never committed a sexual offence before and it follows not before April 2018 committed a sexual offence against a child. You do have a criminal history between 2007 and 2013 but for other types of offences, driving, assault, property and dishonesty offences. You have not been in prison before. Paragraph 32. Turning to your prospects for rehabilitation, because you have the capacity to work, have strong support from your partner, her family, your family and your friends, and have never offended in this way before, your prospects of rehabilitating yourself are fair. They will improve if you receive treatment for your PTSD at the very least, if not for all the current and potential diagnoses. Put another way, you need to deal with the issues that are affecting your life or you might reoffend in this way again or reoffend in ways you have in the past. Paragraph 33. Before I turn finally to the sentence, there are two further matters I must deal with. The first is that application has been made for an intimate forensic sample to be taken from you and through your legal representative you have not objected to this. I am satisfied that it is in the interests of justice that in all the circumstances I order that an intimate forensic sample, namely saliva, be taken from you. The sample may be taken by a doctor or nurse or other authorised person. A saliva sample is taken by wiping a swab inside your mouth. I must inform you that if you change your mind, the sample that will then be taken is a blood sample and the police may use reasonable force to enable such a procedure to take place. Paragraph 34 The second matter is that as a result of my sentence today, you become a registrable sex offender. You will be required within seven days of your release from custody to report your personal details and begin a regime of annual reporting required by the Sex Offenders Registration Act and be otherwise subject to the Act for a period of 15 years. Because you are appearing on the video link, I do not require you to sign the acknowledgement of receiving the form. That form will be given to you through Corrections Victoria. 35. At this point, I am turning to sentence and Verity can come back into the child witness remote facility room. From this, it is clear that she was not present for either this information about the background and complexity of the psychological discussion, and nor was she present for the reiteration of the details of the offending against her. But she is present with her support people for the actual sentence, which is commencing at paragraph 36. Turning then to sentence, Mr McPherson, the court must denounce your offending 
and impose a sentence that is just in all the circumstances and that reflects the community's abhorrence of your sexual offending, particularly against children. Further, by my sentence, I must seek to deter you and other men from sexually offending against children. Paragraph 37. You are convicted and sentenced on the charge of sexual penetration of a child under 12 years to nine years' imprisonment. Paragraph 38. That is the sentence I have decided upon, taking all relevant factors into account and based on my assessment of the objective gravity of this offence. The sentence is less than the standard sentence because of the personal factors affecting you, principally your mental ill health. Paragraph 39. Because this is a standard sentence offence, I must fix a non-parole period of at least 60% of the head sentence of nine years, unless it is not in the interests of justice to do so. I find it is not in the interests of justice because of the impact of your mental ill health making service of a term of imprisonment more onerous. And as I have found, there is a serious risk of imprisonment having an adverse effect on your mental health. I direct that you are to serve six years imprisonment before becoming eligible for parole, which is less than 60% of the head sentence I have imposed. Paragraph 40. I declare that you have served 141 days in pre-sentence detention not including today. These will be deducted administratively from your sentence. Paragraph 41. I have signed the disposal order. Paragraph 42. Are there any other orders required? Paragraph 43. Counsel. No, Your Honour. Paragraph 44. Thank you, Ms. Calgaro. You or Mr. Kenny, when he is available, will be speaking to Mr. McPherson, I take it? Paragraph 45. Ms. Calgaro. Yes, certainly, Your Honour. Paragraph 46. Mr. McPherson, your legal representatives will be in touch. Thank you. I understand the difficult situation this is for everybody concerned. There is always a ripple effect in such cases and I acknowledge the dignity with which everybody has conducted themselves in these difficult circumstances. Thank you. The video links can be disconnected. An excerpt from an article published by the ABC, it's titled In the Witness Box, it's by Elise Kinsella and was first published on the 18th of July 2021. You can go to the ABC website and search for it there or click on the link in the podcast feed. In the country town before the justice in that town that the young woman called Nadia brought her accusation of rape by two men at a party, a mistrial was declared before all the evidence had been heard. The case was moved to Melbourne to be heard before Judge Sexton. The excerpt commences here. It was agreed that a video recording of Nadia's evidence from the first trial would be played to the jury, so Nadia would not need to give her evidence for a second time. 
but when Judge Sexton reviewed the transcript from the first trial, she became concerned about the evidence that had been presented to the jury. She told the defence barristers, Mr Morgan and Mr Rattray, during a pre-trial hearing, I consider that a great deal of it was inadmissible or irrelevant. She was most concerned about the questions that were put to Nadia about her appearance and clothing on the night, as well as the questions about the kiss with a female friend. There seems to be a great deal of emphasis throughout the trial of the fact that she was wearing a see-through top, and that seemed to me to be an improper line of questioning, Judge Sexton said. Judge Sexton went on to say, it appeared improper as a stereotype that if a woman seeks to wear something that is sheer, that therefore she is more likely to be consenting to sexual activity. Mr Rattray argued that his questions only needed bare relevance to be included in the second trial. Hayden Rattray. I'm not saying for a moment that because she was wearing a see-through top she consented. I'm not saying that for a moment. Judge Sexton. Well, that's the flavour that comes through when you read the transcript. Mr Rattray argued in court that his question about Nadia's appearance was relevant to the trial because they showed his client could remember what Nadia had worn that night. Judge Sexton's response to that argument was short. And my question then is, so what? She replied. Mr Rattray and Judge Sexton went back and forth about the issue for some time. Hayden Rattray, but there's nothing in any of these questions I've asked that's improper. They're not even leading. Judge Sexton, that has no basis other than a stereotype. The conversation led Judge Sexton to finally say this. I can't believe that in the year 2020 I am having a discussion with counsel about the relevance of what the complainant is wearing in a sexual offences trial. Judge Sexton also heard arguments from the barristers about the questions that were made about Nadia and a female friend kissing. She outlined her concern that these questions were inadmissible because they related to prior sexual activity. Mr Rattray argued that the kiss between Nadia and her friend should not be considered sexual activity. Judge Sexton, so kissing is not a sexual activity? Hayden Rattray, no, absolutely not particularly not when you take dot 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 Judge Sexton, I'm definitely living in another universe. Mr Morgan would argue that the evidence should be included because it showed Nadia tried to minimise the effect of evidence by saying the kiss was closed-mouthed. But Judge Sexton was not swayed. She ruled that the questions about that kiss could not be included in the second trial. All up, more than 130 lines of transcript that was put to the jury in the first trial were removed as evidence in the second trial. It meant evidence about Nadia's appearance and that kiss with a friend was not seen by the jury in that second trial and could not have affected the verdict of the trial. But for Nadia, it didn't change the experience she had in court. Legal experts, criminologists and mental health workers have all raised concerns about what these transcripts show. One criminologist says the questions that the two defence barristers asked Nadia during the first trial should shock our moral consciousness. While another legal expert believes a comment made by Judge Richard Smith during the first trial where he described Nadia as breaking her duck 
during the alleged rapes in reference to her virginity needs to be investigated. And one of the country's leading trauma psychiatrists is using this case to sound the alarm about the level of psychological distress that she says sexual assault complainants are experiencing within our justice systems. Take it easy and get some help if you can't. 1-800-RESPECT in Australia. Samaritans on 11 in the UK. And in the US, 1-800-273-TALK. These and other resources are on our Facebook page and podcast page. Yeah, thanks for sticking it out to the end. And I want to say thanks, thanks for listening, thanks, thanks for listening. Come back next time. There'll be comedy. There'll be a rather good book review. There'll be an amazing foray into the world around the fringes of AFLW. And there will be prizes 